It's not the easiest of tasks to define a cult hero, so I decided to let the listeners do it for me. A cult hero is someone who bleeds for their club. It means everything to them and the fans love them for it. A player that looks like they're trying really, really hard. Full commitment on the pitch, loads of caps for one club and an obsessive following. As much as a cult hero needs to inspire, they also need flaws and imperfections. Cult heroes remind you of why you love football. They connect you back to your club. Gave their all for the club and had a class personality. A fan favourite through years of service, or more rarely a one-off standout like winning the cup. They're generally very average, but somehow turn into Cristiano Ronaldo when playing against their club's rivals. Not good enough to be considered a great of the game, but loved by a small section of fans nonetheless. Some absolutely great hallmarks of a cult hero there. Ben, have you had a fun week trawling the archives? Gosh, I always have a fun week, Arthur. You know me. Yeah, I love nothing more than looking up nostalgic football players that have gone on to be cult heroes in their relevant boroughs. We're the 11. We're a podcast. We look at themed football teams. Um, We throw in as much wit as possible, though we're not particularly funny. Um, And today we're looking at the cult heroes 11. Yes, we've gone for a 4-4-2 this week, and it was certainly one that was interesting to research because I think for a cult hero, as we've heard from the listeners, there's so many different characteristics that it's easy to shoehorn, frankly, anyone you want into the team. That is true. And 442 magazine, a little while ago, they did a survey um, of fans at different clubs and tried to identify the cult hero of each of those clubs. But I don't think it's really possible. I think everyone's going to have that subjective opinion on exactly what it means to be a cult hero. Um, So these 11 that we're going to name today are just a smattering, if you like, of the big personalities and big influences that have played a part in football history. Please do let us know who we've missed out, who you think is a very controversial shout from us at 11pod. That's the word, not the number on Twitter. Great. Let's get going. So in goal between the sticks in the cult hero 11, Arthur. So I had a goalkeeper who tempted me greatly, and that was Rushtu. Who's the oh, Rushtu Rekpa. Absolutely. The iconic Turkish goalkeeper who yeah. was famed for the war paint under his eyes. <laughs> unnecessary, isn't it, really? Exactly. Well, actually, it was necessary, Ben, because I ruled him out after somewhat disappointingly discovering that he actually wore it because it was anti-glare paint. <laughs> <laughs> why does no other goalkeeper suffer from that? Maybe that explains why Rushtu was somewhat more successful than some of his contemporaries. Rushtu, that's mad. So instead, I have decided to go for Rene Higuita, Oh, yeah. Okay. Who is obviously known for one iconic action, which was his scorpion kick whilst playing for Colombia in a friendly against England at Wembley. He scored 41 goals in his career. So he's another (laughs) of those goal scoring goalkeepers, which I think you kind of have to have when you're considering a cult hero. And I think one feature of his game, which I can only really equate to a game of FIFA when one player is so ridiculously superior to the other that they decide to embark on mazy runs with their goalkeeper. And that was René Higuita. He was an absolute maverick of a goalkeeper. Um, maverick is a great way of describing him, <laughs> Arthur. And, and also incredibly small for a goalkeeper, which again kind of made him iconic. It, it felt yeah. like he was completely out of position. In fact, many times he was out of position. <laughs> the, uh, 
the mazy run habit that he had was slightly shown up when in the 1990 World Cup, he decided to try and about 30 yards out of goal, dribble past Roger Miller, uh, but was dispossessed and Miller scored. And that was a, a chance to reach the quarterfinals of the World Cup. So that was a bit unfortunate. Um, I wouldn't say he's any one club in particular's cult hero. He played during his career for clubs in Colombia, Ecuador, Venezuela, Mexico. And of course, he, he racked up a lot of caps for his international side. But I think in this instance, it's one act in particular that makes him so memorable and qualifies him as a cult hero. And that is his scorpion kick. Mm. It was just so bold. And I mean, you have to say he took his opportunity in a friendly for, for good reason. Uh, if it had gone wrong, it wouldn't have been quite so catastrophic. But it's an image that lives incredibly long in the memory. It really is. He, he's iconic, isn't he, Rene Higuita? And, and if the game didn't have personalities like him, it would be a, a far more boring sport to watch. Um, so a great pick to, to kick off the Cult Heroes eleven. We've got four at the back. Um, so he should be reasonably solid when we take on the world. I think you've picked the left back, haven't you, Arthur? I've got the the left back, right back combo, and you've got mm. the centre back partnership. So, yeah. starting off with left back, I've chosen a Southampton club legend. Nice, and I've gone for Francis Benali. Ah, oh, yeah, I, I know the name, Francis he, Benali. He had a Southampton career of three hundred and eighty nine games, and he's a massive fan favourite even today. He does a lot of punditry around the club. Actually, his daughter Kensley Benali is match day presenter. Um, wow, so it runs it runs in the family. But he he became a cult hero at Southampton due to his commitment to the club, an unbelievably hardworking attitude. He made some pretty ferocious, full blooded tackles, and he was born and raised in Southampton, which I think gives the fans some sort of connection to the player, makes them almost feel like he's one of them. And I think mm. that's reinforced by the fact that he was a decent defender, but he was never spectacular. He just did the job. I think he was also incredibly brave. <laughs> he he once broke his arm against Leicester and played the final 30 minutes with wow. his broken arm. That is and the that sort is of commitment, isn't it? That earns you cult hero status. You know, that extends outside the game. He obviously does a lot for charity at the moment. Mm. He's ran and cycled to every Premier League and Championship ground in the UK in 2016. I think one of the key features of a cult hero is that they're a great bloke. And Francis, yeah. But Franny Benali is a great bloke, so he qualifies. Okay, we need quite a, a sturdy centre-back to play alongside him, I feel, Arthur. And that's why I'm going to go for Arjan de Zoo. A Portsmouth legend. Do you remember Arjan? He, he was a Portsmouth legend and also a Wigan legend. He was um, he was famously spat upon by El Hadji Jeef in a Premier League game. Um, and his incredible lack of reaction um, was what sort of cemented his place as a hero for me. He, he was the sort of player that put blood and guts on the line each time he went out on the football pitch. And his... I guess one of the things that made him a cult hero was his unusual physique for a football player. He was kind of sturdy and stocky and, and he was almost like a nightclub bouncer in the way that he looked on the football field. But he certainly possessed his fair share um, of skill and vision. He made 500 appearances in his career, 146 of which were in the Premier League. 
He came to Wigan from Barnsley back in 1998 and he had an enormous impact for them. Um, over the next five seasons, he won the club's Player of the Year awards um, and endeared himself to the fans off the field as well with a lot of the community work he was doing. When he left for Portsmouth, he then became a cult hero there uh, during a four-year stint. And despite his advancing age, when he returned to Wigan um, in 2005, he was still able to get the club promoted to the Premier League and win the side's best ever player in a PFA vote. Um, so that's why I particularly liked about him, really, the fact that that he managed to endear himself to more than one set of fans, Arjan Dazou, um, with his committed performances. A weird fact about Arjan Dazou, when Tony Blair was asked in an interview in 2005 who his favourite player was, he said Arjan Dazou. No, it wasn't. I he did. believe that. He said Wigan's Arjan Dazou. He's really <laughs> strong, never gives up. I could do with him at the whip's office. <laughs> it's quite hard to believe, isn't it, really? Um, and as if this tale couldn't get any more peculiar, he now works as a forensic detective in North <laughs> Holland. Wow, what a character. His contributions to football outside of football with those those few stories there are almost as impressive as his on-pitch yeah. contributions. The, the Labour Party's favourite cult hero centre-back is Arjan Dazou. Um, so to play alongside Arjan Dazou, we need another big character, Arthur. And I think one thing that can cement your place in a, a club's history as a bit of a cult hero is someone who dedicates a lot of their career to one club. And one such centre-back is Lloyd Doyley. <laughs> was, he, was he a Watford? He was. <laughs> He was. He made his debut in unusual circumstances for Watford, Lloyd Doyley, because he actually came on to replace Pierre Issa, who quite famously, and you might have seen it on YouTube, was actually dropped off his stretcher on the way off the pitch. Oh, was that the one where they, they both started walking in the wrong direction? Basically, and, and Pierre Issa fell off. So Lloyd Doyley was the player that came on for him to make his Watford debut. And one of the things that the Watford fans often talk about as being the reason for his cult hero status was his lack of goals. It took him 269 appearances to score his first Watford goal, um, which was an incredible equaliser. <laughs> Apparently they were um, they were on their way to a 3-1 win at QPR and it was a diving header. The reaction on the touchline was so berserk um, that it actually caused one of their treatment men to otherwise known as physios in the real world to jump up in the air and hit his head on an oak beam where he needed hospital treatment for an eight inch gash. That's that's an impressive story about Lloyd Doyley. Um, he was actually picked out in that 442 survey that I mentioned about being an, an incredibly cult name within the Watford fan base, but perhaps not because his quality of play, but because of his commitment. Mike Parkin from Watford Podcast said, early in his career, most supporters would have suggested he'd be lucky to forge a career spanning 443 minutes. He was ungainly and looked almost permanently uncomfortable. Fans would fidget in their seats when he was on the ball, convinced a mistake was on the horizon. <laughs> the thing was, though, that mistake very, very rarely materialised. So Lloyd Doyley makes up our centre-back pairing. It takes quite something for a defender to always promise mistakes, but then never actually deliver on the mistakes. I, I think that is a talent within itself for which he should be very proud. And I think quite an interesting fact about him is that 
his championship career spans for so long and he's made so many appearances for a club of pretty good stature, such as Watford, yet on an international level, he's only played nine times for Jamaica, who aren't oh. the strongest nation, which surprises me, actually. Well, Jamaica's centre-back pairing back in the day, Arthur, was unplayable. Exactly. How could he get in that team? So it's interesting that you've chosen uh, one of the key characteristics for Lloyd Doyley is his lack of goal scoring, because mm. that exemplifies our right back in today's team, Tony Hibbert. Oh, Tone. Tone had to make this team, didn't he? Absolutely. He became synonymous with the phrase, Hibbert scores, we riot at Goodison <laughs> Park. Very much Mr. Everton. He's a one-club man. He made 328 appearances for Everton. And I think his utility is quite important in this team. He was originally a midfielder, but he converted to right back after an injury to Steve Watson. And he just stayed there for the rest of his Everton career. In terms of goal scoring ability, he didn't actually score in his entire career until his very own testimonial against AEK Athens. Which has a real feeling of like your own birthday party when you're nine, (laughs) where you kind of have to be man of the match. So I I think the thing is at these events, when it's someone's testimonial and they haven't scored in their entire career, traditionally it would be AEK Athens would deliberately concede a penalty and then they'd wheel in Tony Hibbert and he'd score a penalty, even though the goalkeeper could have saved it. But actually... Tony Hibbert scored a 25-yard free kick. Did he? Wow. It was actually a fairly good goal. And and I think the manager after the game suggested that perhaps he'd overlooked Hibbert's free kick taking ability throughout his career. Incredible. I I, I really like that story. I I don't know how these things work, but I'd love to know how they sat around in the boardroom organising Tony Hibbert's testimonial and decided to play it against AEK Athens. Yeah, I believe it was something to do with either his first or last game in European football was against AEK Athens. So they meant a lot to the big man. Well, I can imagine so. Tony Hibbert deserves a place in this cult hero 11. And I like the way this team is shaping up. One more random fact about Tony Hibbert is that in 2013, he purchased a 33-acre French carp fishery on the outskirts of (laughs) (laughs) Tony Hibbert is now a fisherman it is Tony Hibbert a moment we never thought we'd see Tony Hibbert scores for Everton so for today's feature I'd like to have a discussion perhaps about a few of the most iconic and memorable moments in Premier League history, as I think they'll probably help root out a few of the cult heroes associated with these moments. Makes total sense, Arthur. I mean, we're blessed that the Premier League has provided so many weird and wonderful scenes over the years. I mean, I'm thinking Darren Bent's beach ball goal, (laughs) the Venkies chicken, um, Tamuri Ketspire's erratic celebration. There's so many things to latch on to. I wonder whether it's possible to provide some sort of consensus as to the most iconic moment in Premier League history, or are there just too many that are so wildly different and unrankable? I think it is pretty difficult because everything's so weird and different. I mean, I particularly 
latch on to the Blackburn's Venki period um, because I just found it quite amusing that uh, a club that had previously won the Premier League were in such turmoil that not only was there a chicken on the pitch, um, but several of their key players, including David Dunn, were starring in a sort of advert to, to sell kind of chicken wings. It was very bizarre, that period of Premier League history. You have the great moments of title conclusions, uh, such as Blackburn, obviously, you've got Aguero! Yeah, uh, Man City winning the title, uh, two goals in added time, iconic commentary. But then again, I would say, if you're taking that as the most iconic moment in Premier League history, the conclusion to Watford versus Leicester in the Championship was probably even better. So I would say so. Of course, those fantastic finales are, are what make the Premier League worth watching. But but it's also off the pitch that I enjoy. I mean, Kevin Keegan's famous interview, obviously, with, I'd love it if we beat them. I'd, I'd really love that to happen again these days. That, that sort of thing charms me, to be honest. I, I think you've got to consider the violence of several key moments. You've got Eric Cantona kicking the Crystal Palace fan, mm-hmm. Luis Suarez biting Ivanovic. You have, obviously, the, the famous... Uh, Lee Bowyer Dyer fight. That was a great fight. I mean, let's bin Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua and just have Lee Bowyer versus Kieran Dyer. I think I, more people would tune into that. I think also a a moment that lives long in the memory as well as Delia Smith's halftime drunken rant. I absolutely <laughs> loved that. Telling Norwich fans, "We need a twelfth man. Where are you?" <laughs> Let's be Avenue. Exactly. Didn't they, um, didn't they rename the stadium Let's Be Avenue for a few weeks oh. just to commemorate? Oh, that's it. fantastic! I absolutely loved it, and, and also the the people off the pitch, the managers that have become cult heroes and icons over the years. One example I'd pull out is in I think it was back in 2014 when Felix Magath was the manager of, of Fulham, and he told his star centre back Breda Hangeland to rub his knee injury with cheese because it would help to treat it. I mean, where do these characters come from? It's bizarre. There's obviously as well, talking about managers, Jose Mourinho proclaiming himself as the special one. That's obviously, that was so new for Premier League fans having this continental, very stylish looking, incredibly successful boss coming in and not only proclaiming himself the special one, but actually backing it up with incredible results on the pitch. And that's that. That would be my charge to the Premier League, really, is, is to say, look, I know VAR is is in an attempt to make the Premier League fairer, and I know that controlling what managers say in interviews is is a means to being kinder and more caring as a football community. But when you look back to the late '90s and the early noughties, there are far greater iconic cult moments than you get today. And I just hope we don't kill the game by sanitising it too much. Completely agree with you there, Ben. Too many moments to count, but please do let us know what you think the most iconic or memorable moment in Premier League history is at 11pod on Twitter. Well, he's stolen it from Avalar. There's a bit of quality here. And how about that? He smashed it in. Now we need a marauding left winger to play just in front of Franny Bernali, Arthur. So uh, who have you picked for that? Okay, so here I've gone for a player who is probably the most niche on our list. Southampton fans may remember fondly, but 
not many others will. And I've decided to choose Gooley de Prado. <laughs> <laughs> I love that we've got a player called Gooley in our side. <laughs> I'm slightly shoehorning Gooley into the team because he played mostly up front for Southampton. But the poor bloke did say that the reason he didn't score so many goals was because he was played out of position. I think he was naturally more of a winger. So hopefully he's found a home in our team here. Gooley for me is a cult hero in so many ways. He initially arrived on loan at Southampton from Chesena when Southampton were in League One. And the fans were very much pitched a player who would bring samba flair and tricks to the South Coast. And he certainly had his moments. He made a smart turn and scored a 30-yard scorcher in the cup against Premier League Blackpool. I remember I was there. What a talent he was. But the thing with Gooley was he was a pretty average player. And <laughs> he he scored a few goals in, in League One. He scored a few goals to get us up, actually, in the Championship. But then in the Premier League, 27 games, no goals. He just could not hack it. And in the later stages of his Saints career, he became a cult hero because he was loved so much by Saints fans, despite this frustrating nature. He he often looked like he wasn't working that hard, couldn't now back it up with the goals. And one memorable moment was towards the end of his Saints career, he scored his first goal in more than two years in a cup game against Yeovil. And wow. we talked about the sort of pity vote with Tony Hibbert in his testimonial giving the penalty, um, which in fact it wasn't with Tony Hibbert, but here it was. <laughs> Jay Rodriguez was going to take the penalty, but then Gooley asked him if he could take it. Jay initially said no before changing his mind and the celebrations and euphoria when Gooley scored were just <laughs> so memorable for so many reasons. There was another brilliant moment as well when he scored a, a hat-trick in nine minutes in a pre-season 8-0 win against Palermos. <laughs> wow. I <laughs> do just... remember Gooley de Prado. And I remember him being one of those players that you kind of knew that nine times out of ten, you could shoehorn him into a particular space on the field and he'd do very little damage. But there was always that one time out of ten where he'd have an absolute blinder and you had no idea how to deal with him. Exactly. That unpredictability. And I think... A true hallmark of a cult hero is someone who 99 times out of 100 is bang average, but then he somehow produces some sort of brilliance and writes his name down in, in folklore. So for, for me, Gooley qualifies on that basis. A deserved pick. Uh, we need someone alongside him in the centre of the midfield. We're playing 4-4-2 today. Um, and I've gone for a Bolton centre midfielder. Now, I think many people will know who this is. It's Ivan Campo. Yes. Who'd have thought that Bolton would sign a player from Real Madrid? As soon as Sam Allardyce is managing you, you know, you can do anything. Ivan Campo was wonderful to watch. He, he permanently looked scruffy, but he oozed class. Um, he was a midfield passer, really. He had a dynamic passing range. But he seemed to play with this incredible love for the town of Bolton. It was quite hard to believe, but he just loved it there. Um, when he left after 129 appearances for the club, he penned an open letter to the fans thanking them uh, and wishing to return to the Reebok one day. He said, I always imagined another kind of farewell. 
in the stadium together with you, wearing that white shirt and feeling the affection of all those voices that have cheered me on throughout the years at Bolton Wanderers. I've always felt that you guys had a special bond with me. I am, after all, just another foreigner in your land. And I know that when I first arrived here, many people thought that I'd come here from Madrid looking for an extended holiday. What in Bolton? <laughs> I think that very quickly you all saw that it was not like that for me, that I'd come here to work hard and earn my crust. And to be fair, he's right. He did work super hard and the fans took to him straight away. They used to wear shaggy uh, wigs on their way to the Reebok during that Sam Allardyce era. He really was a fan favourite. So much so that there is now a folk music band named after him called Ivan Campo. Um, so if ever there was proof of a cult hero, it's the fact that there's a, a an indie band named after you. Very good shout for our team. I think as well that, you know, endearing letter to the fans, many players would probably get their PR team to pen something down. But I feel like with Ivan, that's... That comes from the heart. That's his words. He endeared himself to Bolton fans. Very easy to endear yourself to a fan base when you're that talented. Mm. And the team that Allardyce constructed, we discussed this actually in a previous episode of this show, but they were just iconic to watch for so many reasons. And in Ivan Campo, they had a world-class player who was still at a very, very, very high level um, playing in Bolton. He was, he was. And I love how keen he was to shut down um, any any thought that he might have been on a Thompson all-inclusive to Bolton. Um, that, that felt like it needed doing and Ivan did it well. Absolutely. So Ivan's partner in the centre of the park. I have decided to keep René Aguita company with a fellow Colombian legend. Okay. Carlos Valderrama. Oh, the hair. The hair. We have got the the shaggiest hair centre midfield partnership I think that's ever played in the game. We really do. We should have picked David Luiz at centre back. Oh yeah, I like the way you said Luiz. Thank you. I've I've been picking up tips from the commentators who love pronouncing names how they absolutely should be. Nice. <laughs> Tell us about Carlos Valderrama. He's considered perhaps the greatest Colombian footballer of all time, and for me. That potentially rules him out of cult hero selection because they ultimately, I don't think, should be too good at football. But I think the reason he qualifies as a cult hero is the fact that from an English person's perspective, we only had brief glimpses of him during his World Cup appearances. He played much of his career in South America and the United States, um, had brief spells at Montpellier and Valladolid. Uh, he captained, of course, Colombia three times in the World Cup, 1990, 94 and 98. And we got this brief glimpse of this man who had an iconic, big Afro blonde hairstyle. He wore jewellery. He had a very suave moustache. And <laughs> he had this incredible grace on the ball in the centre of the park. He, he was the languid playmaker who danced around on our screens with so much style that I think he became a cult hero from an English fan's perspective, simply because we saw him so rarely. I would agree. And a cult hero doesn't always have to be to do with the quality of the footballer, does it? It can be a look, a style icon that, that people warm to and, and replicate in the stands. That's one of the key reasons why Carlos Valderrama is such a good foil 
in the centre of midfield. Well, there's certainly somewhat of a sort of Hispanic trend um, that's going through this football team. And I want to continue that with another South American player to play on the right side of the midfield. Now, this is probably the most obscure pick, I would suggest. I have gone for Claudio Canigia. <laughs> do you do you know who Claudio Canigia is? Absolutely no idea. Well, don't worry, Arthur. Let me tell you. Um, he was famous for being the player that was hacked down by an awful Cameroonian hack in the 1990 World Cup. You might have seen um, clips of it where he skips past a few men and each of them try and scythe him down and eventually... He goes absolutely flying. He's actually arguably one of the greatest wingers in Argentinian football history. And he made 50 appearances for the national team. Um, He was an icon because he had this long flowing blonde hair um, and he was good friends with Diego Maradona. And by that, I mean, he was caught up in the booze, the drug scene. I mean, he actually received a one year ban um, while he was playing for Atlanta out in Italy. Um, But he was smoking, he was partying. And it's easy to see how you become a cult hero um, when that's the sort of activity you you get up to off the pitch. But the reason why this wonderful player that was heralded as one of Serie A's greats makes it into the cult hero 11 is that in 2000, he signed for Dundee. What a signing. I struggle to believe this. It's very much like... Angel Di Maria turning up at Forest Green Rovers. This is proper dream material for the Dundee fans. How far into his career was he at this stage? He was towards the twilight, but he was 33. So still had some going left in him. Um, And he was friends with their then manager, Ivano Bonetti. The media, Uh as you can imagine, went absolutely crazy when they heard that um, Claudio Canigia was coming over to play for Dundee. So much so that he actually featured in the comic book The Beano that week. A number of office staff had to more than double um, in order to handle the demand for tickets as Dundee took 2,500 fans to Aberdeen for his debut. The club shop ran out of letters to print on their football shirts and even his teammates were asking for his autograph during training. Claudio had to say about this, I don't pretend Dundee is as glamorous as some clubs I've played for uh, and the league in Scotland is not as big as others. But for me, it's not a comfort zone. I'm proud of my name as a footballer and the only way to keep it is by helping Dundee do good things. So really, he was this icon, this player that had an enormous potential and enormous reputation, who decided to come across to Scottish football to play for lowly Dundee. Uh, In 21 games, he was the star man in each of them, far better than any of his teammates, so much so that he was eventually lured to Rangers to play Champions League football. But that wasn't before he had become the ultimate cult hero of Dundee. There's something incredibly impressive about the ability to maintain such an unbelievably high standard uh, whilst having this incredibly entertaining lifestyle off the pitch. Exactly, exactly. So uh, not always known for being the model footballer, but certainly Claudia Canigia um, was a great player to watch uh, and one that will be heralded in Scottish football history. Chance to pull a goal back. Superb! 
Now, if you haven't listened to the show before, each week we have one position that's up for grabs. Ben and I both suggest one player to fill that role. And you, our listeners, are able to decide on who makes the final squad on Twitter at 11pod. That's the word, not the number. The position this week is striker. Ben, first of all, you're going to name one of the strikers in the team and then we are going to discuss the up for grab spot. Correct, Arthur. And as we've said so far in this episode, a cult hero becomes a cult hero for a variety of reasons. Um, And this particular striker that makes it into the team uh, is a cult hero because of his amazing ability to not let age falter his career. He actually went deep into his 30s, even into his 40s, being an icon of the game. Uh, And that's Bundesliga legend Claudio Pizarro. You might remember him from his brief spell at Chelsea, where he was a bench warmer for the most part, but um, a lethal striker nonetheless. He's widely considered as the greatest exponent of Peruvian football in Europe, something which I'm sure Nobby Solano will contest. Um, But he is the highest scorer and the most successful Latin American soccer player in the history of soccer in Germany. Um, He's the all-time club top scorer for Werder Bremen, Um, and the ninth top scorer in the history of Bayern Munich. He's the sixth top scorer in the entire history of the Bundesliga and the second top scorer in the 21st century. Um, So he's certainly very acclaimed. And in fact, he's been so popular at the clubs that he's been at that he's come back for multiple times. He had five distinct spells at Werder Bremen, where he's perhaps most renowned as a legend. And although he was 36, he was still starring in a Bayern side during one of their most successful periods. So it's this age defiance, really, that makes him a cult hero within the Bundesliga. He played 446 Bundesliga games, scoring 196 goals, so a pretty good record. Um, And perhaps the most interesting record that he now holds, he is the oldest ever Bundesliga goal scorer, um, scoring a goal at the age of 40. So an an incredible player that didn't let age um, influence the longevity of his career. Um, And I felt he deserved a place in this cult hero 11. Absolutely, Ben. For me, he's a player that's more synonymous with Bayern Munich, actually, than than Werder Bremen. I remember him in the early noughties leading that strike force very effectively. In English football, we've got the likes of Jamie Curiton, who is still Mm. banging in the goals at 42 or or however however old he is, but very much in the lower leagues. Claudio Pizarro is still doing it in the Bundesliga at that Mm. age, which is absolutely outstanding for an outfield player at 40 years old to still be doing the business. So we have another striking position, but it's up for grabs. Um, And of course, you can vote on Twitter, as Arthur says, Arthur, who is your nomination? Okay, Ben, I've decided to nominate for this coveted position, Shola Amiobi. Oh, Shola. I love Shola. Shola was was a player, and we discussed one of the key characteristics for a cult hero is that ability to ramp it up against your team's rivals. And Mm. Shola became known as the Mackham Slayer. Because (laughs) despite the fact that over his Newcastle career, he averaged a goal every five games as a striker, which was very much average at best. Against Sunderland, he scored seven goals in 12 games, which highlights his ability to become 
a completely different player when lining up against Newcastle's rivals. It, he was a, a real legend. And I think the fact that Alan Shearer was such a dominant striker um, during part of his era kind of allowed him to take on this mantle of being the personality of Newcastle's strike force. Um, I always used to really enjoy watching Shola. And I felt like he had more potential than, than he ever delivered, actually. He always worked hard. And I think he was slightly dogged by injuries, unfortunately. A really interesting pick, Arthur, for the Colt. 11. I've gone for someone that was a bit before our time, a player that I wish I'd seen play um, because he is undisputably Reading's cult hero. Uh, and that is Robin Friday. Robin Friday was the original rock and roll footballer. Um, his on-field performances were, were always of the highest class. In fact, he won Reading's Player of the Year awards in both of his full seasons there in the late 70s, um, as well as being their leading goal scorer. But he was known far more for his off-the-field antics, which is the stuff of legend at the Medeski and at Elm Park. His personal life was full of heavy smoking, drinking, womanizing and drug abuse. Nothing which we condone here on the 11, um, but it certainly made him stand out from the crowd. He was incredibly successful across a career that only actually spanned four years, which is the tragedy of this, really, that after four years, his life outside of the game was far beyond what could be coped with within the game itself. He kept missing matches because he was drunk from the night before or because he couldn't be bothered to turn up. He was banned from the pubs in Reading on 10 separate occasions. Apparently, he went on an all-nighter uh, with his friend Rod Lewington. He tells the tale that when they entered the, uh, the pub, Friday was wearing a long overcoat and hobnail boots. He walked onto the dance floor, removed the coat to reveal that he was wearing nothing underneath and then began to dance completely naked apart from his boots. Unfortunately, a lot of the misdemeanors off the field did start to creep onto the field as well. And he famously kicked Mark Lawrenson in the face during a match. Um, having scored the last minute winner in Reading's 2-1 victory over Rochdale, um, he ran behind the goal and celebrated with a policeman kissing him. He described the incident as the policeman looked so cold and fed up standing there. I decided I'd cheer him up a bit. So Robin Friday was certainly a character, a tragedy, really. He died very young. Unfortunately, his lifestyle off the pitch tainted what was a potentially glittering career um, on the pitch. And he's one of those players that I'm, I'm gutted I never really got to see play for my local team. But I think because of the personality he was and, and the uh, impact he's had on the fan bases at Reading and his other side, Cardiff, um, I think he does warrant a nomination. I think that's a, a very good shout and certainly a history lesson for me. I hadn't heard of Robin Friday. I'm not sure it ever um, materialised, but they were going to make a film about Robin Friday. Oh, wow. He sounds very much like the football equivalent of James Hunt in the in the Formula One circuit. He was very Quite much possibly. A, a man who enjoyed his life off the pitch and fair enough to him. Very good shout, Ben. Who will win? Please do let us know on Twitter, on our poll we'll have on there now, who should qualify as the final striker in this team. Shall I- 
one of the names that I very, very much struggled to leave out of the strike force today was Sean Gota. Yes, yeah. Um, Man City striker who was incredible value for money. Absolutely. He was synonymous with the phrase, feed the goat and he will score. Yes. Yeah. Then progressed into feed the yak for Yakubu as well. And various feedings that have gone on <laughs> over the course of football history. And actually 21st of June is Sean Gota Day in Bermuda. Amazing. Um, an iconic striker, certainly. I, I picked out a few more. Um, I felt Jersey Dudek, the Liverpool goalie, had, had earned cult hero status, obviously with his a performance in the penalty shootout where they won the Champions League, but also his inept goalkeeping at times that made sure that he became a um, a part of Liverpool folklore. I think we could put Ali Al-Habsi in that bracket as well. Esteban Cambiasso at Leicester, again, another case of a, a world-class player turning up at one of the lesser clubs to, um, to ply his trade. Uh, and I'd also like to throw in Janinho, the Middlesbrough centre midfielder who uh, had a massive influence on bringing Samba to Middlesbrough back in the day. A few more names from me. There was Titus Bramble, yeah. who was an appalling defender, frankly, but played unbelievable amounts of games for, for Premier League sides. So clearly there was some quality there. And one final Southampton player from me, you could categorise him as a pantomime villain rather than a cult hero, but Danny Osvaldo. Oh, yeah. Who, Arrived at the club for a, a pretty extortionate fee, scored an absolute screamer against Man City, headbutted our captain, Jose Font, and then went to be part of a rock band in Argentina. <laughs> Just crazy. I remember you signing him and you getting so excited about that, Arthur. And I did think he was a, an exciting signing. He'd done the business at Roma and I thought, oh, <laughs> this is, this is going to take us to the next level. How wrong I was. Well, the Cult Heroes 11 looks something like this. Uh, in goal, Rene Higuita. Uh, at left back, Francis Benali. Centre back partnership of Arjan Dazu and Lloyd Doyley. Playing at right back is fisherman Tony Hibbert. Uh, left midfield, Guido Prado. Centre midfields are Ivan Campo and Carlos Valderrama, with Claudio Caniglia playing at right midfield. And up front, we've got Claudio Pizarro uh, alongside a striker who is yet to be decided by you at 11pod. That's the word and not the number. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We'll see you on the next episode of the 11pod. <laughs>